invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 as we continue now in our study of Luke's Gospel. And as you turn there, again, I just want to say thank you for praying for my family over these last few weeks and let you know that uh, Caroline is doing better uh, with her pain. We're very thankful for that as she continues to heal and recover. We'll be going to, back to Dayton this week uh, for a checkup. So if you would pray uh, that all that would go well. And we are very thankful for your prayers. Again, very thankful for those of you who've uh, written letters and cards. Uh, Caroline, again, reminds me every day uh, that the mail has come and I need to go get it. And so uh, she loves that and it's very encouraging to her. So thank you very much for that. Uh, today, we're going to continue, as I mentioned already, in our study of Luke's gospel uh, by looking at the last section of Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as I read this passage for us. This is what God's word says as he has inspired a doctor named Luke to write down this account of the life, the ministry, the death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And he writes this, beginning in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. When he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one except to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. If you would, pray with me. 
Father, as we continue in the study of Luke's gospel, we come now to an account where we see two miraculous interactions that Jesus has, the, the reminder to us that Jesus indeed is the one with all authority, and yet, Lord, there is so much in this passage for us to learn as Jesus uses that authority, principally that, that we are called to trust in Christ no matter what our circumstance may be. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to do that very thing now as we walk through this passage together and consider the words you put before us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been walking through Luke's gospel with us, you know that in this chapter we're in, we've seen a lot of desperate situations. Uh, we saw how Jesus invited the disciples to come into the boat with him as he went across the Sea of Galilee. And as he was going across and he was sleeping, uh, there was a great storm that uh, left the disciples with a moment of despair. They believed that their very lives were over. They woke Jesus in their desperation and he calmed the storm. Uh, then as they got to the other side, they encountered a man in an even more desperate situation, a man who had been uh, oppressed and possessed by demons to the extent that he was living among the tombs. He was an outcast in his town. He, he wore no clothes. He was covered with blood and scars. He, he was in a completely hopeless and desperate situation. But of course, Jesus healed him and brought hope to him. And now, we see Jesus returning back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee where a crowd has formed. They are anticipating the return of Jesus and immediately Jesus is met with desperation and despair, particularly from Jairus because of his daughter who is dying and because of this unnamed woman who has reached out to be healed by Jesus. As we walk through this passage, that this despair, this desperation is what I want us to keep in mind because while our circumstances may be very different today, we all know what it is to find ourselves in despair, don't we? And to find ourselves in those desperate situations where we have exhausted all of our resources and where we have nothing left but to cry out to God and to, to beg of Him to rescue us, to deliver us, to heal us and those we love. We know what it is to be desperate and in despair. The question is, what do we do in that desperation and despair? And so I want us to think through this as we walk through this passage today, beginning with that first question I put before you. Do you turn to the Lord in your despair? Because oftentimes it is despair that prompts us to do this. <laughs> We're very self-sufficient people. We're very independent people. And so often we don't like to ask for help. And, and at times we don't even ask God for that help. We just, we do what we feel like we have the power to do. But at those moments where we feel no hope and where we feel we can do nothing, we, we often find ourselves crying out to God. I was reminded of this recently as I was rereading an account that I'd come across years ago. And I believe I've shared with you before about it. It was a story from 2008 of a father and son who were in a desperate situation, uh, Walter Marino and his 12-year-old autistic son who were 
uh, walking out on a jetty at Daytona Beach near the end of the day and decided to just swim in that area around the rocks, not realizing how quickly the tide was moving out, and that tide then pulled them far out from the shore. As I was reading a, a longer detailed account of it just this week, I read about how uh, Walter uh, saw his son and due to his autism who began to uh, get very upset and, and very frustrated with the situation. He tried to calm him, and in the midst of trying to calm him, he lost his grip on him. His son began to drift away from him, and, and he lost sight of his son. And as Walter would say in his own words, he could do nothing in that moment but cry out to God. And he described, Jesus, God, please. Jesus, God, please. If you remember the story, he went through quite an ordeal. In fact, uh, that entire evening, he was lost out at sea. He was rescued the next day by a Coast Guard ship. And hours later, his son was rescued after being in the water for 13 hours. He was found eight miles from shore, a miraculous recovery. But one in which, Walter would later recount, he, he was desperate. He was in despair. He, he could do nothing but cry out to God. And and you and I, we, we know what that is. Maybe we haven't been in that situation or these situations, but, but you likely know what it is to cry out to God in desperation and those moments of despair and those moments where, where you can't do anything to fix it. I, I found myself there in recent weeks, as I've shared with you about this, this very difficult surgery our daughter went through and is going through. And in the midst of that, without going through every detail of it, there's been moments where where I just cried out to God for relief. And, and, and my prayer was simply, Jesus, please, Jesus, please. And, and you know what that prayer is because you too have likely cried out, Jesus, please, Jesus, please. And, and, and I believe that's what we see in essence in this passage is, is Luke is putting before us these, these desperate individuals. That this is not just one of the things they are looking into to fix their situation. They, they are pleading with Jesus to help them. And really, I believe the principal one here that's pleading, the one that the passage begins and ends with, is this man named Jairus, who it seems is waiting for Jesus when he comes out of the boat. Now, remember the context of what's taking place here. Uh, Jesus and the disciples had gone across the Sea of Galilee, had endured and gone through this storm that Jesus calmed to, to heal this demonically oppressed man. But you may remember from our study last Lord's Day that in that healing, uh, Jesus in interacting with these demonic forces that had overwhelmed this man allowed those demons to then go into a herd of pigs who then drive the pigs into the water and drown them. And this was not received well by the community he was in. In fact, as people heard of this, they came out, they saw and witnessed this man who had been healed, but their attention didn't seem to be so much on that as they were just afraid of what was going to happen next. And this town, all these people that came out, they plead with Jesus not to stay and not to heal them, but to leave. And so Jesus, essentially on one side of the sea, has been begged to leave, and now he faces an entirely different reception because the people on the other side of the sea are begging him to stay and to come and to heal them. That news has spread throughout this region. Crowds have gathered. There were crowds that were around Jesus when he left, and I believe probably that same crowd is still there and is even built. And among that crowd, Luke tells us, there is this man named Jairus who was waiting for Jesus who had witnessed 
the miraculous works of Jesus, and now was crying out for those works in his own life. Luke tells us in verse 21 that he was a ruler of the synagogue. And this means the local synagogue there had a, a group of rulers, of, of elders of their synagogue. These men would have been in charge of the worship in the synagogue. They would have been in charge of planning out who would speak and preach and read the word and pray in the synagogue. He would have had oversight of the activities there in the synagogue. And if you remember kind of what we've walked through in Luke's gospel, you may remember that Jesus, early on in his ministry, he, he spent a lot of time in synagogues. He would stand and read the word. He would be a visiting rabbi who would preach, but uh, the receptions weren't that great as time went on. In fact, at least one situation as he's preaching in the synagogue, they literally run him out of town and want to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> and so we find Jesus preaching less and less in the synagogues at this point. And so we don't know all the details and what went on with Jairus before this, but I would imagine that Jairus, as one of those leaders in a local synagogue, had been warned about Jesus and perhaps doesn't have a, a very positive impression of Jesus, as many of the religious leaders of that day were now threatened by him. He isn't exactly who you would expect to find falling at the feet of Jesus. But he's desperate. <laughs> And he's desperate because Luke tells us his, his only daughter, who's 12 years old, is now at the point of death. And we don't know how long she had been sick. We, we don't know a lot of details here. We, we just know that he is in a desperate situation, that his daughter is dying, and now he comes to Jesus and he falls at Jesus' feet. He is begging and pleading that Jesus might save his daughter. And again, we, we don't need to know all the details to know what this is, because if you're, you're a parent, <laughs> you know that when your child is hurting and your child is suffering, and, and at this point his child is dying, that you'll, you'll do anything, anything, to save your child. And so Jairus has come, and it, and it seems at this point he's, he's not real concerned about his standing in the local synagogue or standing with the religious community. He, he is just begging of Jesus in his despair that Jesus might save his daughter. And so, Jesus responds. We see at the end of verse 42 here, he, he, he is going with Jairus now. So, so we don't get all the details of the interaction. We just know that there's a large crowd there. Jairus has made his way to the, the front of this crowd. He has fallen down before Jesus. Now Jesus is going to go. And you can imagine Jairus is both elated and, and excited that Jesus is coming, and now there's some hope. And at the same time, he's likely concerned, because as Luke tells us, as Jesus is trying to leave, the crowd is pressing on him. And you can imagine why, because Jairus isn't the only one seeking Jesus for a miracle the crowds have gathered. There are other children that are sick. There are other people that have infirmities. There, there are many people now who have gathered around Jesus and are crying out to Jesus. And, and you can imagine that scene. as they're, they're all wanting Jesus' attention. They're all wanting Jesus to come to their house and heal their family member. And yet he, he's going to this other house. And so they're pressing on, and so you can imagine for Jairus, this probably is a concerning situation, because again, Luke's already told us, his daughter is dying. She, she is near the point of death. Now, if you have ever 
been in the awful situation of having someone you love be on their deathbed, you, you know that you don't want to leave their side. I mean, you want to be there with them. And yet Jairus, he's left his daughter's side because he feels there's hope in Jesus. And now Jesus is going to come, but now these people are keeping him from coming. Which brings us to this next question. How do you respond when the Lord seems slow to act? How do you respond when the Lord seems slow to act? Because in this moment, I think for Jairus, it probably seemed that the Lord was, was being slow. I mean, he's coming to his house, but then he stops. Luke tells us for this reason, verse 43, uh, there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And so the, the scene here is all these people are, are pressing in on Jesus, but, but then there's this one woman in particular that will come become the, the focus of this part of the narrative that Luke tells us a bit of her background here. And as you look at the other gospel accounts, you see even more of her background. Uh, Luke just tells us about her, her chronic illness. He tells us she had seen a lot of doctors. Now remember, Luke's a doctor. And that she had spent all she had, but she couldn't be healed. Mark says it. This way, he writes that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had, but was no better, rather grew worse. <laughs> Mark seems a little bit more critical of those in Luke's profession here and essentially says that not only had she spent all she had, but the doctors that she was going to see, things got worse for her and not better. Now, we are very thankful to live in this day and age of medical discoveries and technology, but it probably doesn't take much for you to imagine what things would have been like in Jesus' day and to even help us to understand what things would have been like for this woman. We have detailed accounts that we can read. In fact, I was reading just this last week in my study from the Talmud, which was the authoritative source for the Jewish community in this day and tells us much about their life and practice. And in the Talmud, you can actually read uh, what someone in this woman's condition would have been prescribed by doctors. And I'll, I'll just read to you a small, small part of that. Uh, this is what she would have been told. Take the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a small silver coin, of alum the same, and of crocus the same. Let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman who has had an issue of blood. If this does not benefit them, take Parisian onions, three pints, and boil them in wine. Notice there's always wine involved here. And give them to her to drink and say, Arise thy flow. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two paths meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come from behind and frighten her and say, Arise from thy flow. Now that sounds more like a cure for hiccups than anything. And you... Read those things. It doesn't take much to imagine. None of this medically would have done anything for this 12 years of hemorrhaging she had. So you can imagine as she tried all these things, as she spent all that she had, her condition indeed grew worse. And what was probably even more terrifying to her than the actual condition itself was how she would have been treated in the community she lived. Because if you go back to Leviticus chapter 15, you read a bit about what God's law required of a community concerning those who had 
chronic illnesses like this to do with blood. She would have been unclean, and therefore she could not live among the community. She could not interact with the community. She could touch no one, and no one could touch her. And in particular, she could come nowhere near the synagogue. I think it's interesting, although we don't really know all the details of it, but it's interesting that Luke notes for us that she had had this condition for 12 years and that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. I don't know what to do with that other than I think it's very interesting because I think what we know of that then is Jairus, as the leader of the synagogue, 12 years before this, he would have been celebrating and he would have been joyful because God had blessed his family with this daughter, with his only daughter, Luke tells us. And in the moment of his celebration and the community celebrating with him, around that same time, 12 years before this, that there would have been a declaration likely in that synagogue that this woman was unclean and don't go anywhere near her. And she would have been told, you can't come anywhere near us until this is resolved. The two extremes you can see here, 12 years before this, one where a young woman is welcomed and her birth is celebrated, being brought into this community, another where a woman is pushed out and cast out of this community. And now, 12 years later, their stories and their paths, they, they collide together because both of them now are in awful, suffering, desperate situations. And Jairus seems to be the focus of this, as he is the one who likely would have been a part of serving with that ruling board of that synagogue and saying, yes, yeah, she, she can't come near us, while at the same time celebrating this daughter God had blessed him with. And so, as such, uh, she would not be the person that would be welcome to come into this crowd, <laughs> to gather there with others, that they would have immediately seen her as unclean. So I think perhaps she has perhaps just kind of covered her face and covered herself so that people might not know it's her. The, the indication that Luke gives us here is she is wanting to stay hidden. And so as this crowd is pressing around Jesus, the, the, the picture here is that she kind of comes up from behind Jesus and she touches just, just the fringe, the, the end of his garment that this would have hung at the bottom of his garment, the indication she would have had to get low. Perhaps she's even crawling down and on her knees and just reaching out to touch Jesus in hopes that this might somehow cure her illness. Now, now we'll, we'll look at what happens to her for a in a moment, but I, I just want to kind of come back to Jairus for a minute here. Remember what's going on with Jairus. <laughs> His daughter is dying. This is an urgent situation. He wants to get Jesus to his house as quickly as possible because as we'll see, she literally is minutes away from dying. And in the process of trying to do this, this crowd is pressing in. And then of all people in this crowd to stop Jesus from coming immediately to his house, it's this unclean woman. Now, there's, there's a whole other sermon that we could look at just, just about, again, how, how when the unclean touch Jesus, the unclean become clean and the clean remains clean, that, that, that Jesus cleanses 
the unclean. And yet, in this context, in this culture, Jairus, the, the ruler, one of the rulers of the synagogue, he would have seen Jesus in this moment as unclean. And he wants to bring Jesus into his house to heal his daughter. The last thing he wants is for Jesus publicly to be seen as unclean by being touched by this unclean woman. And so I would imagine for Jairus in this moment, as all this is going on, he, he probably is at least thinking, perhaps saying, Jesus, hurry up. <laughs> you know, when I cry out to Jesus, I want him to hurry up. And, and maybe you know that. Maybe it's the same for you. We, we, we have no patience in those moments because it seems like those moments have no room for patience. I mean, I would imagine for Jairus, as this situation unfolds and as this woman is declared clean, that perhaps Jairus is just standing over there thinking, couldn't we do this later? (laughs) She's had this for 12 years. She'll be okay for 12 more hours. I mean, mean, do you ever find yourself in one of these crisis critical moments where you're just crying out to God? And at the same time, you you can see others celebrating a work of God, and it's a work that to you may may seem, in a way, to be rather petty compared to what you're asking God for. Almost insignificant, you know. And you want to rejoice with the brother or sisters, yeah, God did this and God did this, but you're just like, but I want God to do this. And he could do that later, but he needs to do this now. And again, I'm just speculating here, but I, I can't help but wonder what's going through Jairus' mind as all this is going on, as he wants Jesus to hurry up. But I believe Jesus, in this moment, is teaching Jairus something, just as I believe he's teaching us something in those moments as well. And so this, this woman touches Jesus, and then, you know, there, there's this, this whole exchange where Jesus... He he knows someone's touched him, and he asks who's touched him, and then you got Peter over here, and you know Peter's always you know Captain Obvious at these moments. You know, well, everybody's touching you, Jesus. I mean, what do you mean who's touching you? And obviously, Jesus knows who touched him. He truly man and truly God. He he knows what people are thinking. He knows the thoughts in their mind. He he knows exactly what's happened here. Je- Jesus is not some picture here of you know some. Uh, power source and the power's gone out and needs to be replenished. Now what's happening here, I believe, is that that Jesus knows full well what's happened because he is sovereign over it. He intentionally has healed this woman, but, but he wants her healing in this moment to be on display for this crowd that God might be glorified and I believe that she might be declared clean. Because remember, she, she is an outcast because of her uncleanliness. And Jesus is not content in this moment with her just kind of being hidden and wandering off and and now she's not struggling anymore. He wants this crowd to see this miracle that's happened. And I think part of that is that she might be declared clean in front of this community again. That she might give this testimony and, and praise God for what's taken place. And there is much to praise here. But again, you've got Jairus on the side who probably in this moment, isn't so concerned about her. He's worried about his daughter. Which brings us to the third and final question there, number three. Do you trust the Lord to keep his word? Do you trust the Lord to keep his word? 
So this woman's despair has been dealt with. Jairus' despair will now get worse. Verse 49, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Now that phrase, do not trouble the teacher anymore, indicates that he had been troubling, meaning he had been begging and asking, that he had just continually been saying to Jesus, we've got to go, we've got to go, I need you to come, you need to come, let's hurry, let's go. Jesus here has not only healed this woman, now he's still talking to the crowd, preaching to the crowd. Jairus here saying, we have to go now. And while this is happening, someone comes to him with no bedside manner. <laughs> Your daughter's dead. You can leave him alone. And, and again, you can imagine what would be going through Jairus' mind at this point. I knew it. I knew there wasn't a moment to waste. The, the confusion going through his mind, why, Jesus, did you say you would come and now my daughter is dead? Why did you stop? Why did you deal with this? There's problems. Everybody's got problems. Everybody needs something. But right now, I needed you to heal my daughter. And as all this is going on, as this person from his household is telling them this as Jairus is, is beginning, I believe, to mourn and grieve in this moment. Verse 50, Jesus hears this and he says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. Again, I'm not in this situation. That's, that to me is a tall order from Jesus. Don't, don't grieve, don't worry, don't fear. Your daughter's going to be made well. And so, again, there, there's a lot here Luke does tell us, but, but he does tell us this. So Jairus Jiren, presses on. He, he goes to his house, and I don't know what he's thinking as he's going to his house. I don't know if he's just kind of going over these words in his head. We don't know if he's just holding on to this word from Jesus. Okay, she's going to be well. She's dead. I don't know how this is going to work out, but she's going to be well. I need to trust that she's going to be well. Or if he's just walking to the house and he's shaking his head going, Jesus, I can't believe you didn't fix this. I can't believe you didn't heal my daughter. I mean, again, the, the news of the miraculous works of Jesus have spread throughout this region. You, you remember not long ago in chapter 7, Jesus encounters a funeral and, and a widow and her son who is dead in a casket. And he heals him and brings him to life. And, and maybe Jairus is thinking about that. Maybe he's thinking, okay, I, we're, maybe we're going to go through the funeral and Jesus is going to do that. Or, well, we don't know, but what we do know is that Jesus gives him his word and he says she's going to be well. And so they get to the house, verse 52, and Luke tells us that all were me weeping and mourning for her. We, I've mentioned before at this time in biblical history, you, you've got professional mourners that uh, as the ruler over the synagogue, one of them, Jairus, would have had a connection to them. He'd probably been one, one saying, hey, we, we've got someone's past here. You need to get over there. And, and they would have been there. They would have been mourning and weeping and wailing. It's real clear here. She is dead. 
And then Jesus comes and he sees this and he says, do not weep for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him because they knew that she was dead. These would be people who were around a lot of dead bodies. They knew what dead was. And she was dead. Uh, you can look throughout the New Testament, and, and what you see is that, that death is often referred to as this way, that, that she's only sleeping. In fact, that passage we looked at earlier with Lazarus, if you continue on, you see a similar phraseology there where, where Jesus essentially says he's sleeping, but then he says, but, but he's dead. And so I, I believe for that person that they, they are indeed dead, but, but he's referring to it as sleeping, meaning she, she's going to rise, she's going to awake. And so she is truly dead, but, but he changes that. So he goes into the home, he takes the mother and the father and Peter, James, and John with him, and, and, and he calls her to rise, and she does. And, and there's even more evidence that she truly is alive, you get her something to eat, she needs food, she's hungry. But then, what may seem peculiar to us is that Jesus says, no, don't tell anybody about this. <laughs> As if people wouldn't know this. I mean, the word has already spread. Someone already came to the crowd and said, your daughter's dead. There would have been great commotion. People would have been asking questions. The mourners have gone to the house. It is public that she is dead. So it may seem a bit peculiar to us that on one hand, Jesus tells this woman who had this discharge of blood, he calls her out so that she might publicly say, here's what Jesus did for me. And then what seems to us to be an even greater miracle here, someone going from death to life, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about it. Do you know why Jesus did that? I don't. <laughs> I really don't. We can speculate all day about it, but, but what we see in the mystery of the gospel, there's times where Jesus said, don't, don't tell anyone about this. There, there's practical things we might think that, well, you know, he, he didn't want that to be a spectacle with her, and, and there's reasons he didn't want that to happen. But at the end of the day, it's because in the providence of God, it's not time for those types of things to be revealed yet. And yet, one day they would be revealed because this is exactly what Jesus would do for everyone who trusts in his name us included, that there'll be a day where Jesus says to us, arise, <laughs> and we do. I mean, there's a, there's a foretelling and a forward pointing here as we see in those other accounts where Jesus brings the dead to life of what is to come for us in the resurrection. So that there's a ton to unpack here, but, but in the moment, what we have before us is that Jesus has done the miraculous once again that the people might know indeed he is exactly who he says he is and, and that he even has power over death, that, that he can reach into death and say, no, no, I'm bringing her back. And again, that's, that's what the Father does. Now that the death's been defeated by Jesus so that, that we, the scripture says, will never die. It will be like a moment's sleep. You, you will close your eyes one day. And I will close my eyes one day. We, we will take our last breath of this Canadian fire-polluted air. <laughs> and the next breath we will take will be in a new heaven and a new earth. It'll be like we, we just went to sleep. 
and we woke up in the realest reality that we can ever imagine. We can't even fully imagine. And, and in these moments of suffering, when, when a father is crying out for his daughter, and when a woman is facing a chronic illness and crying out to God, and when you're suffering, and when I'm suffering, and when those we love are suffering, God has given us just this, this glimpse. He's just pulled back the curtain for a moment so that we might see that these things we suffer through, they're not the final word. God has the final word. And that word is, arise. <laughs> and therefore, we can have hope this day, and we can have hope the next day, and we can have hope every day. Because God has given us a promise. He's given us a lot of promises. I'll remind you of one we read earlier, and we'll end with this, Romans 8, again. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So loved ones, in those moments, when you are crying out, Jesus, please, Jesus, please, Jesus, please, know that he hears you. Know that if your hope and faith is in him, he, he loves you and that he will keep this word. Nothing can separate you from his love. And that is enough for us to hold on to this in each day. If you would pray with me.